0: Good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. We have the privilege of beginning the fourth book of the Torah of reading Parshas Bamidbar together. I want to thank our dear friends Becky and Avi Katz and family for sponsoring the Parsha Perspective series for the year in loving memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, Lee Nishmas David Ben Menachem Manish. Also, this morning, I want to thank Lee and Danny Waxman of Cedarus, New York, for sponsoring Parshas Bamidbar. Partial perspective, a loving memory of Danny's mother, Marilyn Margulies, Miriam Bas Yaakov Mayer, eighth year outside of Rosh Chodesh Sivan, and his neshama should have an aliyah. Also this morning, we dedicate our learning to our brothers and sisters in Israel, whom we cannot stop thinking about and checking in on as they continue to suffer and be targeted by a barrage of rockets by such evil, wicked, nefarious, unjust attacks. And we dive in for their safety, their security, and of course, for peace. We are in the Artscroll, Stone Chumash, Page 726, and we begin Parsha's Ba'midbar. Let's say some merits Mitzrayim Lemur. Our book, our fourth book, and our Parsha begin by telling us not only what was communicated, not only what was transmitted and said, but where it was communicated and where it was said, specifically B'midbar Sinai, specifically in the in the desert. Here we are given the topography. Here we're given the climate of where the Torah was communicated. And the Medrash tells us, v'ydabar sh'mon Moshe sinai, lama b'midbar sinai? Why is that important? Teach us our history. Teach us our ethics and morals. Teach us our laws. Why is it necessary or in what way does it help to be able to tell us where? So says the Medrash b'midbarah Parsha ala simen za'in, mikan sh'anu begimel nit Torah, we have three elements or three climates, three environments in which Torah was given: bo'ish with fire, b'mayim with water, uva midbar and in the desert. We know it is with fire because the description of Har Sinai, which we are only days away from being back at together with the holiday of Shavuos, was entirely in smoke. It was in flames. Uva mayim minayim. How do we know with the water? It says. So the cryptic Medrash leaves it there. This very cryptic Medrash simply tells us that the Torah, in order to receive Torah, the Torah is likened or the Torah was transmitted. With fire, with water, and with the desert. And of course the question is, what does that mean? What do these three elements have in common or how are they connected or in what way do they reflect different aspects of of how we receive, how we learn, how we live, how we teach a sense of Torah. So, Ramer Shapiro, Zatzal, the great Rosh Hashiva of Chachmei Lublin, Ramer Shapiro was an extraordinary, extraordinary individual. I think we once did a people of the book. You could find online, we spoke about him, his history, his contribution. He was a member of the Polish parliament, he was a community Rav, he was an Avbezdin, he was a Rosh shiva. I don't know how he had time for everything, let alone introduce the world to the gift of Dafyomi. So he has a Sefer on Chumash called Imre Das, a Sefer on Torah. And in it he says the following: Eish mayim umidbar. What is the significance of these three? And he says: Am Yisrael The Jewish people, from when we became a people. We were Tumid Mesiris Nefesh Bad Torah Living as a Jew took great self sacrifice. You know, being a Jew doesn't come easy. It's expensive, it's costly, paints a target on one's back. It's not a simple life. It demands Mesiris Nefesh. It demands sacrifice, it demands service. To live a life of faith, to live a life of Torah, even when in conflict and confrontation, even with tension with the moral values of a time. When in tension with enemies of the Jewish people. We marched to the altar and we put our neck out. And throughout the centuries and millennia, there were people who slaughtered us simply because we remained steadfast and true to our convictions and our commitment to Torah. We jumped into the sea and we jumped into the fire and we let ourselves, uh, let our lives be taken all in the name of our commitment to our Emunah, to our Mesorah, to our Torah. So where did this come from? Where do we draw the strength, the tenacity, the resiliency? Why are we willing to be Moser Nefesh? Why are there countless young men, women, Israeli soldiers who right now are putting themselves on the line in order to defend in Israel from its rockets, from its attacks, just give up this Jewish dream, just assimilate and blend into the other nations of the world. Just be accepted and received. Why does the Jewish story matter? Where do we get the courage and the conviction to persevere? So it says Rameir Shapiro, these are the three notions, be'ish, Bamayim, and Bamidbar. ma'orosh al-divrei ha'am. These three elements reflect three times significant milestones in our history, where we were most Nefesh, where we were willing to sacrifice where we were willing to make that effort, Avram Aviha Uma Avram Avinu Abraham, our forefather, our great patriarch, Nizraklakivshana Bad allowed and was willing to have himself thrown into the furnace, into the fire, before he was willing to compromise and before he was willing to violate his most basic tenet, his most basic conviction, which was the existence of monotheism, the existence of one God. And he planted within us that capacity and that strength, that even in the face of fire, a willingness to sacrifice in the name of our Torah. And if this was an individual, Avram was one unique, one distinct individual. We became a family, we became a nation, we became a people. And now we stood between the sea and the Egyptians. And we could have turned back to the Egyptians and said, take us back, we'll blend in, we'll assimilate. We'll walk like Egyptians, we'll be just like you. You're right. Never mind what were we thinking. But instead, V God said, walk and we did. Right into the sea, right into that body of water, ready to give it all up, ready to lose it all. Nasham and Aminadav, we know, from his ankles to his knees, to his waist, to his chest, to his shoulders, all the way up to his nose. He was ready to give it all up. And he planted within us not as the individual Avram. But as the people, as the nation, not with fire, but with water. And then, lastly, the third—that was a—that was an of a rega. That was a momentary test. The Egyptians behind us, the sea before us, and the momentary test: Would we immerse ourselves? Would we walk in? But then, kasher Israel Then we went into a desert, a desert that was barren, snakes and scorpions, all kinds of dangers loomed. There are no fruit trees, there are no vegetables, there's no wheat that grows in the desert. And we didn't go, it wasn't a moment like when we walked into that sea. It was for 40 years. It was only because of our commitment, our love, our devotion to God and to His prophet, Moshe, that we walked right into that desert. And we didn't know where would that next meal come from before the mud began to fall. We didn't know how would we hydrate ourselves. There is no water source in the desert until we discovered and were gifted that be'er. And how would we be protected until we were given those clouds of glory? And God recalls nostalgically, He remembers, Zacharti I remember your chesed. I remember that you came after me. Bamidbar. You followed me into the midbar. You followed me into that barren desert, desolate, dangerous, because you put all your trust in me, you were willing, you were willing to take that risk. So it says Mayor Shapiro, where do the Jewish people, in Tuvshin Peal of 2021, still in the state of Israel, in our own homeland, need to face adversity in order to stand up for who we are and what we believe? Where does a Jew anywhere in the world who confronts anti-Semitism stay steadfast in what we believe? even if it means confronting Eish, Mayim, or Midbar, even if it means Mesiris Nefesh with fire, with water, or the dangers of the desert. We get it from our own history. And that's what Rav Meir Shapiro and his Imre Das suggests. That's the meaning of this Medrash. That, the Torah was implanted within us in three ways, and because our ancestors displayed and demonstrated that sacrifice, the Messias Nefesh, for Torah and for Judaism and for our faith with those three elements, they gave us that strength, they gave us that capacity that continues to be drawn from until today. That's the Imre, Imre Das Reb Shapiro. The Ksav Sofer, the Kesav Sofer, the son of the Kesav Sofer, also has a suggestion in his parish on the Torah, and he says the following: He says, "Nitna b'mayim, lahoros amasha amru chazal l'manim shlo deveri torah l'mayim. Why are Torah? Why is Torah compared to water? Gemara in Tanya is The Gemara chazal, the rabbis say, Torah is compared to water. Ma mayim yordim and makam gavol lemakam namuch. Water always flows to its lowest point when there's a leak." In the ceiling, it comes down through the wall and floods the floor. It makes its way if you live in a place that has a basement. We spoke about this, Parshas Bahar, last week, we spoke about this. Water flows from the high point to the low point, and therefore water flows, like Torah, it goes from not the high point, but to the person who's an anav, the modest, the humble. The individual is not arrogant. The individual is not driven by their ego or doesn't see themselves as superior. That's why we said at the beginning of Pasha's Bahar. That's why Hashem gave the Torah on our Sinai, the most humble, modest of all the mountains. That was the lesson, the message that Moshe received. That that um, Moshe Kibel Torah, not Bis Sinai, he didn't receive the Torah. Geographically, the coordinates at Sinai, Moshe kibel Torah Mis Sinai. He received the Torah of Sinai, and we on Shavuos are going to re-receive that Torah, not at Sinai, but with the message and the theme of Sinai, of humility. So that's water. The Torah was given with the element of water, a reminder that just like water flows to the lowest point, so too Torah will flow most authentically and most genuinely and in a most lasting way to those who are lowest in the sense of humility and modesty. Number two says the Ksav Sofer, what's ash? what's fire? Torah is compared to fire. Kinir mitzvah, the Torah or Pasakin Mishlei. That a ner, a candle, is a mitzvah. When one fulfills a mitzvah, it's like lighting a candle. And when one learns and lives Torah or, that is the light. Shami'ir la'adum adumaj, yichayu yelech ba. That the Torah, the root of the word Torah is or, it illuminates the path. Torah doesn't change the reality, but it illuminates. We are able to see and navigate our way through. That's what the Gemara So we're able to navigate this world. We're able to identify. That's my yitzhara. That's this obstacle. That's the pitfall. And because when we learn Torah, we turn the light on on in the dark room called this world. It doesn't eliminate the obstacles and the challenges. It doesn't make everything easy or perfect. But it gives us the tools and the power to be able to navigate. That's what Chazal say: the Medrash Tanhum and The Torah that God gave Moshe was written with a black fire and a white fire, because the Torah is gives life, it gives strength, it illuminates, it enables, it prolongs, and therefore it gives us a, a life force. It is the fire that burns within us. It is the fire that generates the heat and the warmth and the energy and the creativity. Torah is that fire that burns inside of us. And lastly, says the Ksav Sofer, Nitna bamidbar. the Torah was given in the desert. The Torah was only given to those who eat the man, meaning those who aren't worried about where their next meal is coming from. Those who are not living as if they are in control, they are in charge, but rather a person who puts their faith person who submits and surrenders to the Almighty and realizes, all there is is you, God. I take my initiative, I make my effort, and then I let go and I let God. The Haman let go and let God. Even though they didn't have a supply, even though they didn't have a Costco shopping amount of food to carry them in the next days, weeks, and months, every day they got their portion for that day. But they let go and let God with the confidence that they were going to get their portion the next day. That's what it was to walk through the Midbar. Be'eretz zerua, To be in a barren, desolate place. To be in a place where you didn't know where your next meal, you didn't know where your protection was coming from. And yet, to submit and surrender, to put trust in the Almighty, in the Ribbon Shalom. So we saw Meir Shapiro and Zimri Da says, what is the significance of Bamidbar? The whole Bamidbar is called Bamidbar. The whole fourth book of the Torah begins by telling us where the Torah was given and where the Torah is transmitted. What do we care? Isn't the... Isn't the content, the text of the Torah what matters? Aren't its laws, its narrative what, what uh, counts? Why do we care about midbar? Why do we care where? So the Medrash expands not just Bamidbar, fire, water, and desert. Says Ramayr Shapiro, fire, water, and desert reflect the three places where we sacrifice, Mesiris Nefesh, that embedded, it planted within us the capacity of fortitude and of resiliency and of faith and of convictions. And a willingness to stand up for our principles and our values, even if it means facing the fire, the water, or a desert. And the Ksav Sofer said it means no. It means that Torah is like water, it flows to the lowest point, the humble. It's like fire that it has to burn inside of us and it illuminates and lightens the world. And like a Midbar, that we have to be willing to go to a barren, desolate place. Ravdruk adds a third opinion. I'll share with you what Ravdruk says. Rav Druk says there's something fascinating about these three. And they are in conflict, in contradiction. What does he say? Fire and water are opposites. Fire extinguishes water. They do not coexist. They don't live together. Fire and water are opposites. Either the water extinguishes the fire, or the fire rages, dries out the water. They cannot coexist. They don't act together. And neither fire or water are relevant to a desert. The desert is barren, desolate. There is no fire. There is no water. And Rashi says, the desert is a place that is absolutely, totally, entirely barren, empty, desolate. So water, fire, and desert do not coexist. They are in conflict and contradiction with one another. And therefore the message that the Torah is given with the three is that no one has a monopoly on Torah. The Torah is not the exclusive domain of those who are like fire, or those who are like water, or those who are like a desert. It doesn't belong to any one group. It doesn't belong to any one hashkafah. It doesn't belong to anyone who wears a particular yamaka. Every Jew, no matter where you're from, no matter your background, every Jew has a portion of Torah. And this is a tremendous rebuke of those who say, look, uh, you know... Uh, Torah is not for me. We don't believe in Kolo, We don't believe in learning. We don't believe in yeshiva. You know, we're just Judaism light. We're just social Judaism. We're just this. No. Every Jew has an obligation in Torah. Every Jew has a portion in Torah. Every Jew is entitled to Torah. It doesn't belong to any one group. And that's why three distinct elements that are in contradiction with one another, the Torah is given with all three to reflect that the Torah is given and is deserved for each and every member of Klal Yisrael. The Rambam writes on the Comment, the Jewish people were given three crowns Keter Torah, Keter Kahuna, and Keter Malchus. We're given the crown of Torah, the crown of the priesthood, and the crown of the monarchy, kingship. Keser Kahuna, Zachabo Aaron. Aaron received the crown of Torah, of Kahuna rather. Keser Malchus, Zachabo David. And Malchus, David, and Melech got. Who got Keser Torah? Who got Keser Torah? When the Rambam in his commentary, the Rambam in Torah, Parakim, Allah, Aleph, when the Rambam applies this Mishnah, it says there are three crowns. The crowns of priesthood went to Aram. And the crown of monarchy, kingship, went to David. Who got the crown of Torah? Who's the individual? I would have thought, the crown of Moshe. Moshe is the Avon Avim. Moshe is the greatest prophet that ever lived. He is the ambassador of Torah. Nevertheless, the Rambam doesn't write that. He says, The crown of Torah is for every Jew we can all wear and proudly put on the crown of Torah. Torah, Tzivalanu, Moshe, Marash, Akilas, Yaakov. So we see that while Kohuna was given specifically to the offspring of Aaron, and the monarchy is given only to the dynasty of David, when it comes to Torah, every Jew, every Jew has access, every Jew has a right, every Jew is entitled. Okay, our parsha continues. Pasuk base rosh b'amidbar sefer b'amidbar begins with the census accounting of the Jewish people, and Rashi of course tells us on the fun of When you love something, you count it. Some love their children and grandchildren, great grandchildren, constantly counting. Some love their stock portfolio. Some love their baseball team's record. Some love their collection of stamps. Some love how many times they finished a Masechta or Shas. You count, you review whatever you love. God loves the Jewish people. So he keeps counting us. And that's why we have another sense, census. And, and in the census it says, what is the manner or mechanism of counting? shemos We're counted according to a number according to their name. By numbers of the names, every male according to their head count. Which is peculiar seems to be a contradiction, mispar Shemos, the number and the names. Which is it? A number and a name signal very, very different things. On the one hand, a number reflects something that's impersonal. A number is just a number. And the Nazis wanted to dehumanize the Jews when they wanted to make the Jews be depressed and despondent. They gave a number. They literally tattooed a number. You're no longer a name. You're no longer a person. You're just a number. A name, in distinction, a name is deeply personal. A name speaks of individual identity. A name is a description of who someone is. A name is the most personal thing about. That's why the Chazal tell us that parents are given an element, a level of nevuah, of prophecy. When they pick a name for their child, the name is not arbitrary, the name is not a label, the name is a description. In some ways, the name is a predictor. The name is very, very important to get the name right. So the Torah tells us the Jewish people are to be counted. How? The name, the number. So which is it? A name or a number? It seems to be a contradiction. seems to be a contradiction. Moreover, the Torah of Parshas Bamidbar follows the same theme. The prophet Oshea tells us the number of the Jewish people are like the sand of the sea. It can't be measured and it can't be counted. And the measure says, what do you mean? That's a contradiction. How can it be, will neither be measured nor counted when it says, why are you doing it? Why are we doing this census in order to arrive at the Mispar b'nei Yisrael? The whole goal is, what is the number of the Jewish people? So, what do you mean, a number that cannot be counted? A number strongly implies and suggests the notion of the number is you can be counted. So, are we a number or numberless? Can we be counted or are we countless? Are we measured or immeasurable? Are we a name or are we a number? What is going on here? So the Svasemis, I think I've shared this before, but it bears repeating. The Helik Svasemis, read the Leib Altar of Ger, says very beautifully. He says, a number is raised to being transcendent numberless when we connect with a sense of unity. When things are apart, when they are disparate, when they are divided, then it's subject to being counted. But when something is united, when it is together, then it blends and it bleeds into one another. It's inseparable, it's indistinguishable. It cannot be counted, and it's rendered numberless. And so whether we're countable or not countable, says the Svasemes, is entirely up to us. And that's the meaning of these two metaphors in the bracha. You know, the bracha in, in the prophet Hosea and the bracha Avram Avinu got back in Sefer Bracious. On the one hand, we are likened to stars. Avram's told, go outside, look up at the sky, and we're like, count our count, like the stars can't be counted, on the other hand, like sands of the sea. So which is it? So the Tzvah says, to resemble stars is to be impressive. They shine bright, they illuminate, the constellations are influential, but stars represent individuality. You describe someone as a shining star, someone as a rising star, someone as a star, an all-star. The blessing to be like a star is great, to be an all-star, a rising star, a shining star, but it means you're an individual. You're distinct, you're alone, you're apart. Sand has the opposite feature. Take one grain of sand and it's almost negligible. One grain of sand, it's insignificant, it's immaterial. That one grain of sand can't even do anything. The only value and benefit to sand is when the sand is united together with other sand and it forms a beach and it guards the dry land from the ocean creeping upon it. So the bracha to be like sand is the power of unity of connection, of togetherness. That even those who feel insignificant or inconsequential alone, when you connect with others, you become a force to be reckoned with. Says the is that was the bracha. That was the bracha to Avram. And by extension to all of us, be a shining star, be an individual, realize that individuality, shine bright, rise like a star, but also like the grain of sands and realize that you're inconsequential, you're insignificant if you're alone, be connected and be part of something bigger than yourself. Shivan, He would apply this to the Mishnah Avos. If I'm not for myself, who am I? We're all meant to be a shining star, and we have to figure out, and I think this is a theme of our parsha that we're going to get to momentarily, the notion of the logo, the emblem, the significance of having a, a, a flag. On the one end, there's the individuality. But on the other, there's being part of something bigger than themselves. So, if I don't represent my mission and my purpose, if I don't pursue why I am here, nobody else will. But if all I care about is being a shining star, standing out as a star, all I care about is my individuality, then what am I? So, the bracha we receive and our aspiration is to be shining stars, but simultaneously like the sands of sea to realize our individuality, but to understand our unity of when we need to be together. Rav Shimshon David Pincus, Zatzal, the great author, Sha'aran and we studied together. Rav Pincus has a little sefer on Chumash, a beautiful sefer on Chumash. And in there he writes, how are we both a name and a number at the same time? He says, and as much as we're part of the covenantal community, we're part of the Tzavos Hashem, we're part of the army of Hashem, and we're charged with this mission to be this bright light in the world and to repair the world with Hashem's timeless Torah values, So we're a number. We're a number. We're a soldier in the army of Hashem and soldiers have a number. We're a link in the chain of the Mesorah. But on the other hand, we're also a name. We're an individuality. We have a uniqueness. We have a mission. So the stars and the sand, a name and a number, they're simultaneously true all at the same time. They're not in conflict. They're not in contradiction. But what we strive for is to reach and to meet both of them at the same time. That's part of the theme, a big part of the theme of our parsha. How do we simultaneously? People make the mistake in both directions. There are those who don't believe in themselves. They give up on themselves. They don't think they're worthy or consequential, they can make a difference. They don't think they're special, they're different, or they're unique. They don't feel they have a mission. And so they therefore blend in and they surrender who they could be and the difference they could make. There are others who are so driven by their ego. All they care about is their own name. All they care about is their own honor and glory. All they care about is their own celebrity. And they don't recognize that they're here to serve something else. It's not about them. It's about the mission. It's about the cause. It's about the effort. And one of the themes of our Parsha is to find the blend between the two, to be able to recognize that we are meant to make a difference, that we do have a unique mission in this world. But at the same time, it's not to shine bright for our own sake, it's to represent Hashem, his Torah, and to repair the world in that image. Moving right along. Perak Aleph Mem, Vav. So you have all the names, you have the actual census right here, excluding the Levium. We've talked previously. Why we don't include the Leviim. So skipping towards the end of the census. On page 730, Perak Aleph, chapter 1, verse 46. So these were the countings of the children of Israel from 26 and up. Everyone goes out to their legion 603,550. And the Levium, they were not counted in this census. The Levium were not included in this census. Now, we've spoken previously, I'm not going to repeat it. The beautiful insight of Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, why the Leviyim were not counted. They are counted, but they're counted separately. So if we want to arrive at their number, if the census matters, why not include them in the overall census and then break it out? Know how many of the rest of the tribes and then how many are the Leviyim. Why must the Leviyim be counted separately? There's a beautiful sikhus Musa Rav Chaim Shmulevitz we've spoken about many times. I want to share with you a different insight this year from Rav Druk, as we continue to make our way through his magnificent Ish Tamid. beer Bir wonders Rav Druk. We just concluded the census, we gave the final tally, we gave the final number, and it did not include the levi'em So why does God have to end the section by saying, and the Levim were not counted? We know they weren't counted. We went through everybody, we said their number, we added it all up, we gave the final tally and it didn't include levi. So, the reality is, we counted everyone but Levi. We gave the final tally that didn't include Levi. Obviously, Levi are not included. So, why do we need a follow up sentence as if a concluding thought? And by the way, Levi were not included. We know that already. The Mejah says the following. Hashem did not tell Moshe to count Levi from the very beginning. While he instructed Moshe to count everyone else, and the prince of each tribe was identified, the prince of Levi was not. Because God had made Moshe realize from the beginning. Moshe So, God identified the leader of each tribe, and he said, now go count. But included, he did not include, the head of Levi. So, Moshe understood implicitly, Levi was not meant to be included in this count. The count concludes, and Moshe wonders, says the Medrash, why not? Why wasn't his own tribe, Moshe's from Levi? And Moshe's curious, he wonders, his own tribe, Levi, why wasn't it included? So God explains why. However, the tribe of Levi don't include, and the reason was they didn't participate with the Chet Egal, and so on. So wonders, Rav Druk, what should be an obvious question on this Medrash. The Medrash tells us that from the beginning Moshe knew that Levi wouldn't be counted, because no Nasi was appointed to do the count. He did the whole count of everybody but Levi. He came to the final tally, the final number, the final conclusion. And only now is he wondering, why not? Why not, Hashem? Why not count Levi? Why didn't Moshe ask it from the beginning? Why didn't he start out from the top? Why is he only wondering it now? When there's a prince named for every tribe but Levi, why didn't Moshe say, "Uh, Hashem, far be it from me to correct you, but I, I think maybe you left someone out. What about Levi? When they're going through the camp for each tribe, but not Levi, why not say Hashem? What about Levi? So listen to Rav Druk's insight. There's a very, very important principle. When Hashem commands us to do something, when God says jump, we say how high. When He says to do, we react immediately without delay. Don't wonder, don't be curious, don't be puzzled, don't inquire. even if you don't understand And only after you complete, according to the way God commanded, now Now you can explore, now you can be curious, now you can inquire. So that's why when God says do the count and he leaves out Levi, that's not the time to ask questions. When God says do, you do. And when you're done, now you can come back and ask. We see this when it comes to Arei Mikla. Says Rav Druk. The Jewish people are east of the Yarden. They have not yet entered the Holy Land of Israel. And they're going to be three east of the Yardin and three in Israel proper and the Mishnah tells us three east of the Yardin three in Israel but until the three in Israel were established the three east of the Yardin were not up and running so says we have to understand to the three east of the Jordan were not up and running until the three in Israel were So why did we need to set aside the Ari Miklat east of the Yardin? They had no purpose. You should only choose the ones east of the Yardain once the ones in Eretz Israel are chosen. It didn't make sense. And yet, you see that Moshe jumped to do it and only asked questions after. This is a theme in the Torah, that Moshe is a model, an example, a paradigm for all of us, not only in our relationship with Hashem, by the way, in all relationships, your spouse asks you to do something, take out the garbage. You jump, take out the garbage. Why'd you want to take it out right now? It's not coming till much later, the garbage. garbage wasn't full yet. What was your thinking? When we're asked in a relationship that we're invested in, when a person expresses a need or a want, we jump to do it. And if we're curious to understand it, we reserve and we save that for later. Shamati says, I heard from David Alevi Soloveitchik who explained the idea of the Akeda the same way. That even in the Akeda itself, you know, we think that a Jew doesn't ask. Meron, 45 people didn't get on the bus, they didn't go home. What a horrific, horrific tragedy. Clies from the Jewish people are still reeling from this tragedy. Absolutely horrific. Absolutely still reeling from this tragedy. Two people were killed by rockets in Ashkelon today. Horrific, innocent civilians, victims, murdered in cold blood, killed by evil, wicked terrorists. How could you not be filled with questions? Avram Avinu is challenged by God, take your son and slaughter him on the altar. How could he not have questions? How could he not have questions? The major says, <coughs> Avram called the place, Hashem Yireh. God, when you told me, take your son, your only son, if I had something to answer, that you know, yesterday... You told me yesterday you told me that I would have continuity through Yitzchak. And now you're telling me to slaughter him? But I didn't ask you. Instead, I surrendered, I submitted, I held back my question. I silenced it in order to pursue your will. But what you see is right after the Akedah, And he calls Avram, Avram, and Avram says, Don't strike the child. Don't strike the child. And Rashi says, Now I know, Avram said, Yesterday I could have made this comment and I didn't. HaKadosh Baruch says, I will never cancel my bris with you. So I don't understand. Avram's greatness is that he withstood the test. Why was he bringing up after the fact what he could have asked? So, Rav Meshulam uh, David Alevi Salavechik, Rashiva Brisk says, What you see is that first you persevere, First you overcome. First you fulfill. First you meet the test, and then you could ask whatever you want. And then you could ask whatever you want. The Jewish people are not a people that squash questions. We ask questions and we explore questions and we embrace questions. But the questions can't come in the way. The questions can't prevent or be an obstacle from doing what is the will of Hashem. First we're Makabal al shemaim. We accept that everything is from Hashem einod melvado, and then we can ask questions. And in, in truth. This is the essence of the holiday we're about to celebrate. This is Shavuos. What did the Jewish people say when God gave us the Torah? We said, Nasa, the Nishma. Why didn't we just say Nasa? Why didn't we just say Nasa? We will do. Tell us what to do and we'll do. You're God, you're omnipotent, you're infinite, you're all knowing. You say this is what's worthwhile to do. We'll do. Why Nishma? Why do I have to listen? So, the Marsha says this. Others say, the Nishma is Nasa. I'm in. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. But I also want to learn, and I also want to ask questions, and I also want to pursue, and I also want to explore, and I also want it to make sense for me. And so Nasa, I'm in, do. Benishma, the fact that I'm doing, I don't want to do it blindly. I don't want to do it as a robot. Now that I'm doing, nishma. Let me hear, let me explore, let me ask, let me understand. That is who we are. We ask and we seek to understand, but first we do. And only once we've done, then we want to understand and explore what is driving, what is the meaning, what is the mindfulness behind what we're doing. So you see that says Rav Druk here, that's why. Even though Moshe knew Levi wasn't going to be counted from the very beginning, he didn't ask about it then. First he did the census, he took the count without Levi. And only when it was complete, did he say, hey, what's the deal? Why is Levi excluded? And that's consistent with the way we do things, Nasa ve Hashem asks us, not just in our relationship with Hashem, but in all relationships. First we do, and then we seek to understand what it is that we have done. Perik Beis Pasgal, If we move over now. The census is complete. And now the Jewish people are going to travel through the desert. They don't know yet it's going to be 40 years, but 40 years through the desert. And they don't walk around chaotic and scattered. It's not random, but it is carefully choreographed. It's carefully curated. By Daber Hashem HaMosheh G'laaron Leymor, Ish al-diglo be'osos Laves Avosam yachanu b'nei Yisrael, Children of the Jewish people in camp, each according to their banner, according to their insignia, the logo of their father's household, all surrounding the ol moed. On page seven thirty two, Perak Bey's pasuk aleph, pasuk aleph, Rabbi Soloveitchik says the the OU rather, the OU Rav Chumash. On page nine, the Rav says the following: diglo, each according to your camp, each according to your division. Listen to the Rav. The Torah spends a great deal of time discussing the demarcation of the various camps, and where precisely each tribe should encamp relative to the others. Just as the Ribbon Shalom has established specific varieties of plants in the botanical realm, which must remain separate and not be grafted together, so too each person has his own talents and role in society. In order for society to function harmoniously, each individual must play a specific role. We have men and we have women. We have Ashkenazim and we have Svarim, we have Hasidim and we have Mesnagdim, we have Reuven and we have Shimon and we have Levi. Some people delude themselves into thinking their abilities are endless, while others are so self effacing they believe they can accomplish nothing. God wanted every Jew to realize where his strengths and weaknesses lie. Each man, Ish al ish the Ish al Diglo. We each have our own mission. We each have our own brand, our own logo, our own difference we're meant to make. And don't forfeit. Don't think you're inconsequential, you're insignificant. If you woke up this morning, God has great faith in you. If you woke up today, you are here for a reason. Now go figure it out. Now go make that difference. Now go become the person you're meant to be. Isha diglo. Each of us have a logo, a brand, an insignia. Each of us are unique and distinct. Stop trying to live someone else's life. Stop trying to be someone else. Stop trying to compete. Or stop giving up on life and being and doing nothing and thinking that you're not meant to be here for a reason. Slonim says, you know, avoda zara is avoda, which is zara. If you're doing someone else's avoda, it is zara to you. It's strange. It's foreign to you. We each have an avoda. We each have a mission. We each have a purpose. And this whole section of the Degolim, which is not a short short section, the whole section here of the flags, of the logo, of the encampment, of the insignia. It's all here for a reason, says the Rav. It's all here to remind us that just like each tribe met and camped under a banner, our families each have a motto. Our families each have a bumper sticker. Our families each have our vision and our mission statement of who we are, our flag that we are under. Have we articulated it? Are we clear to our children and our grandchildren? Have we left them not only a legacy of a will, but an ethical will, who we are and what we stand for, what we believe in and the difference that we want to make. Who are we? What is the flag that we plant and that we proudly wave and that we proudly stand under? And so this section, which is not short about the encampment in the desert and the logo, the insignia, is not just a part of ancient history. It's not arcane, archaic. It is informing and inspiring. It should the way we live today. Rav Juk says similarly in his Eshtomin, he quotes from the Midbar Rabbah, Perashabeyi Sim and Gimel, the Medrash says, Yordim The angels all came down in Arsenai and they all had a camp. Tel- cântari- the Dagul Mirvava. The Nuda Behuda Rihaskaland's commentary in Shokhanar Mervava, Mirvava. Dogomirvava, the Medrash says. The Mervava, the myriad of angels were Dagul. They each had a dagel. Daglanut. Each of the angels came down to perform their daglanut. The angels were waving flags. Now the angels were not waving the one flag. Daglanut is waving the same Israeli flag. So what happened here? The human beings at Harsinai were going back there in less than a week. The Jewish people were standing at Harsinai and they saw the angels came down. And the angels were each waving a flag. The angels like bar mitzvah boys today. Each had their own logo. Each had their own brand on their yarmulke. And so the Jewish people said... I want that. I want a logo. I want a brand. I want an insignia. And that's what Hashem provided, the Degolem, and that's what's going on. And wonders of Ravdruk, What does that mean that angels had flags and logos? And why were the Jewish people, why were they jealous of those flags and logos? What is the significance? What is the meaning? What is going on? Says Rav Druk the following. And that's by the way what we say in Tehillim. Uvashem nid in the name of God, Nidgol, let us wave a flag. Let us wave a flag. What is this? The Israeli Day Parade in the name of God. Lid nidgol nidgol yimale hashem Komishalo What's going on? Says Rav Juk the following. The whole idea of the Degol, like Rabbi just said, the whole idea of the flag of a logo. A logo is who are you? The wedding couple on their wedding invitation. Sometimes on the dance floor. Sometimes uh, on the thank you notes. That logo is who you are. We're different, we're unique, we're distinct. This is our mission. This is our message. This is what we represent. This is what we stand for. What does it mean the angels each came down with a logo? What are angels? Angels are each a unique expression and manifestation of God, each here for a shlichus. Angels only come to this world in order to carry out an agency, in order to carry out an effort on behalf of God. And once it is complete, they disappear. Ein shlichuyos. <laughs> No one angel does two uh, efforts, and no two efforts are done by one a- angel. It tells us that once the angel has completed their mission, the angel disappears, the angel self-destructs, there's no use or no purpose, no reason for that angel. So what's the idea that the angels came down with the, golem, the myriad of angels were each waving a flag. It means an angel, it's clear, it's obvious. For the angel, the logo, why are they here? What is their shlichus? For each of us to have a logo is what's our shlichus. What's our message? What's your mission statement? What's your brand? Every one of us is a brand. What is your brand? What you do is who you are. What is your brand and what does it say about you? What is our brand? What is the logo that we wave? Who are we? And just like angels, Let's wave our flag, let's wave our logo, let's wave our emblem, in the name of God. The emblem is not, you know, I'm the best investor in Bitcoin, I've got a Tesla, I've got the biggest house, the nicest car, I'm the best looking. The emblem, the logo that I wave is not all about me and this world. The flag that I wave, the logo that I proudly display, is all about the name of God and advancing His mission here on earth. It's why I'm here. The mispar shemas calls Google legoogle the mispar and the shemos. This is the theme that we've been embracing all along. On the one hand, a uniqueness, a distinctiveness, a personal mission. On the other hand, part of a bigger. The star, the sand, the name, the number, number numberless, countable not countable. All of this is this duality that we're meant to live simultaneously. We're like a malach. We each have a unique mission. On the other hand, we're serving in the army with a greater purpose part of something much bigger than themselves. part of something so much greater. Maybe this is why, says Rav Druk, we read Parshas B'amidbar, Kodamatseres. We're reading the Book of B'amidbar, working in the Parsha rather, of B'amidbar. Before Shavuos, Everyone needs to know when we're going to come be at that mountain, and we're going to be united and unified. We're going to come to that mountain together to re-receive the Torah. We also have a number, but we have a name. We're unique and we're distinct. We each have a mission and a purpose, a Schlichas here in this world. And that's what we say: Saint Jaqueu, Bisora Secha." It's not just God, give us the Torah, give us some generic Torah. Saint Bisora secha. Give us our portion. Each of us have our own portion. Each of us have our own difference. Each of us have our own interpretations and suggestions. Each of us have our own way to live and to manifest and to display Torah in this world and in our lives. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky and his Emes Liakov has, I'll share just a third on Isha Abdiglo and then move on. It says Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, isn't there a big risk? Twelve tribes, three north, south, east, west, around encamping uh, as they're making their way through the desert. Isn't there an enormous risk of color war? I'm not color war, but war. Isn't there an enormous risk they're going to be fighting? It's going to be conflict? There's going to be tension? So if Yaakov Kavnevsky points out, you know why you can be rest assured that won't happen? Because even though there's three tribes north and three tribes south and three tribes west and three tribes east, you know what's traveling right in the middle of them all? At the center of it all is the all is the Arnabris, or the Luchos, is the Torah. When the Torah and when Hashem are in the middle, then uniting us all, our differences complement instead of compete. Our difference collaborate and complement instead of compete. As long as the Kiddush Baruch is in the middle. saviv The Omoed has to be in the middle. And when it's in the middle and we unite around it, then we can be all together. It's so, so painful. After the tragedy in Meron, Jews all over the world felt united, connected. Nobody cared what the victims looked like. The two people killed today. Nobody cares who they were, how they observed, or how they voted in the last four Israeli elections. Nobody cares. We are united in our pain, in our anguish, in our fear, in our uncertainty. We are united in our courage and convictions. But why does it take tragedy? And why does it take conflict? And why does it take loss of life for us to feel united as one? When the Jewish people, when that when the Torah Kedosh is in the middle, then we can be different, we can be different. But we don't have to pass on one another. We don't have to cancel culture one another. We don't have to be hypercritical of one another. The message of parshas b'amidbar, sefer b'amidbar, at the very formation in our adolescence of becoming a people was stop fighting and stop having conflict. That doesn't mean you need uniformity. We had separate Degolim. We had separate flags and logos and insignias. We encamped separately. We're allowed to have important differences. We can have respectful debates about hashkafa and in Judaism, but we have to be united. We have to be one. O we have to surround the Almoid that whatever we wear or don't wear on our head, And however we believe or act or conduct ourselves, we all have to be united as one. Last week we spoke on Behind the Beam, if you haven't listened, I strongly encourage you. We interviewed Rabbi Benji Levine, the grandson of Rav Ari Levin, Levine, the tzaddik of Yerushalayim, who grew up in American Jersey City, he actually went to YU. He spent his summers with his grandfather, living with his grandfather, Rav Ari Levine, learning with him, with his uncle Rav Yashiv, with his cousin, the Kalaniyavskis, His story is just remarkable and he's a phenomenal storyteller. And he talks about walking around Nachlaot with his grandfather, Ravari Levin. He talks about, we just came off Yom Yerushalayim. In the interview, he talks about taking his grandfather to the Kotel for the first time. His grandfather, Kriya, said an emotional Shechianu back at the Kotel in 67 right after the Six-Day War. But he talks about walking around Nachlaot, the lepers, the prisons. Ravari Levin, the tzaddik of Yerushalayim, was uncompromising, unflinching in his convictions and who he was and what he stood for but he loved every Jew. And every Jew felt that love. That Avas Yisrael, whatever tribe or whatever gate the others were choosing to walk through, the great Reva'a Levin, the Tzadik of Yushalayim, loved and showered and smothered them with love. And he gave a firsthand description of what that was like. If you haven't listened, it's really, really worthwhile. Absolutely fantastic. Some of the al Yachanu, says Rav Yaakov. We can have different encampments and different logos. We can come to different conclusions and we can act differently. However, it has to all be united by our sense of Torah, our sense of loving Hashem. Okay, Perek Gimel Pasigal. Moving on to the next chapter. After the encampments. The told us Aaron and Moshe, but Yom ber Hashem is Moshe Ba Sinai. These are the offspring of Aaron and Moshe on the day Hashem spoke to Moshe at Har Sinai. Says Rashi, I don't understand. We're listing the offspring of Aaron and Moshe, and then we only list the offspring of Aaron. Yet, Nikru told us Moshe, lam Torah. the offspring of Aaron, Aaron's children are called the offspring of Moshe, because he taught them Torah. And what do we learn from here, says the Gemara in Sanhedrin, This teaches us that if you teach someone Torah, it's as if you birth them. If you teach someone Torah, if you gave them a spiritual birth, a spiritual identity, it is as if you gave birth to them. Says Rabbi Soloveitchik, back to the Rav, says the Rav, Eila told us our and Moshe. listen to this very, very powerful insight. We don't usually think about this. Listen to this powerful insight. We're all acquainted, you know, before we get to that, Revolba. Revolba gives us a practical example. I shouldn't say practical, but gives us an example in Tanakh of this. The notion that a teacher has to be devoted to a student, like the student's their own child. This is a big lesson, Revolba, as Kedarko Bakodish, as he's wont to do, Revolba extracts a lesson and a message for parents, but also for malamdan for teachers, for educators. If when you teach someone's Torah, it's as if you gave birth to them, it means that your student can't be a statistic, your student can't be a number, your student has to be your child. We love our children unconditionally. And we display an extraordinary supernatural patience for them. And a the teacher, if that child is to be as if they gave birth to them by transmitting Torah, then a teacher needs to show that that superhuman patience and that love, the unconditional love to a student. Elisha referred to his Rebbe, Eliyahu Anavi, as Avi, Avi. The Gemara Moed Katen tells us that why did Elisha call uh, Eliyahu Anavi Avi, Avi twice, my father, my father? One was my father, and one was my mother. Eliyahu Navi, the great prophet, who was the teacher, the mentor of Elisha. Elisha says, "Avi, Avi, my father, my mother, my spiritual guide and teacher, my Rebbe, is like my father and my mother, has given me a spiritual birth." This notion that one who teaches Torah is as if they gave birth might even have implications. Halachah Shlomo Kluger in a sefer Chachma Shlomo and Ezra Siman Aleph, he wonders the following: What if you adopt a child? What if someone is childless? Someone is unable to give birth to their own, to conceive on their own. And they adopt a child and raise that child and teach the child Torah. Do they fulfill the mitzvah of Puravu? <speaking in Hebrew> that if you raise a child, an orphan, in a home, it's as if you gave birth. So how do you understand the ki'ilu? So this is a machlogist between the drisha and the taz, yor deisim and, the, reshman, and the, the drish is of the opinion that whenever it says ki'ilu, it is, it's um. It's only making a comparison, it's as if. It's virtuous, it's noble, it's beautiful, it's as if. Whereas the Taz says, no, no, no. When Chazal say ki'ilu, they mean, we count it as. We count it that you did it. And what's the nafkamina? So Paskins, the uh, Rav Shlomo Kluger, and the Tzachma this would be a nafkamina. The nafkemina is if you teach a child Torah, if you adopt and raise an orphan, and you didn't have biological children of your own, with that do you fulfill Pru'uravu. With that do you fulfill the mitzvah. In other words, this notion, this sentiment, is so significant and taken so seriously and so far that perhaps you even fulfill the formal mitzvah of uravu. The Orachayim HaKadosh, the Helig Orachayim HaKadosh on our parsha, says something, a big chiddush. Not only, Rashi said, if you teach them Torah, it's as if you gave birth. If you teach them Torah. That's how Rashi understood it. And the Gemara says, If you raise them. But the Orachayim quotes and goes even further. And he says, Do you know why Aaron's children are counted as if they're Moshe's? Because Moshe did something else for them. Not only did Moshe teach them Torah, what else did Moshe do for them? After the Chayta Egel, Moshe davened for Aaron's children. As it says of Aaron, his son of Hashem, Moshe's heartfelt davening for his nephews, Elazar and Itamar, was so heartfelt, so genuine, that Moshe, through his tefillah, saved his nephew's lives. Says the Makadosh, HaKadosh, you know what else makes somebody as if they're your children? If you daven so hard for them. If you daven so genuinely, so tirelessly for someone. If you daven for someone as an extension of yourself, it's as if you gave birth to them. So three different expressions. Hamelame Torah is as if you gave birth to them. Hamegadlo, if you raise them, it's as if you gave birth to them. Or hamespalah if you daven for them, it's as if you gave birth to them. But I want to share with you this insight of Rabbi Salavitch, and maybe even though there was so much more to share, I maybe nevertheless, with this will end. Listen to the Rov. We're all acquainted with the Akedah and how Avram performed. But we do not pay sufficient attention to an Akedah that was carried out by Moshe. Moshe's Akedah was perhaps more awesome and more terrifying than Avram's. After Avram offered Yitzchak, the two of them returned to Harah Moriah with great happiness. But Moshe never experienced the satisfaction. In this case, the Rebun requested and received his sacrifice. What is the Rav talking about? The simple right to leave a last will and testament, to die in one's own bed surrounded by his children was denied to Moshe. Moshe died alone on a mountain. Before he died, he did not lay his hands on Gershom and Eliezer, his sons, but rather on Yehoshua, the son of Nun. Moshe's power was bestowed on Yehoshua and not on his own progeny. More tragic still was the fact that Moshe's children do not appear in the book of Jewish genealogy. Moshe twice counted the children. Sorry, Moshe twice counted the Jews and also counted the tribe of Levi. Initially, the Torah says these are the descendants of Aaron and Moshe on the day that Hashem spoke to Moshe at Sinai. The Torah should have listed the generations of Moshe, his own children, along with the generations of Aaron. Yet, the subsequent Pasek ignores Moshe entirely and centers around Aaron alone. Where are Moshe's children? The Torah is silent. Where are the generations of Moshe? The Torah doesn't tell us. Moshe did not merit the normal satisfaction of flesh and blood to to be reborn to a child, to live again through the child, to feel the great joy that upon his own death his progeny will remain. Moshe had two children. Of course he loved them both the same way Avram loved Yitzchak. The Creator asked both Avram and Moshe to give up their children to sacrifice them on the altar. Unlike Avram, no angel called to Moshe, don't stretch out your hand. The knife mercilessly tore apart the relationship between Moshe, Gershom and Eliezer. In the book of Shoftim, Moshe's son Gershom was not designated as Ben Moshe, but Ben Menashe, because Moshe's children no longer belonged to him. For the receiver of the Torah, for the teacher of Klai Yisrael, it's prohibited to have a connection to one's family. He's the father of Israel. Every Jew has an equal share in him. It's prohibited for one individual to have a closer relationship than another. Moshe's Torah must be inherited equally by all. The Torah is analogized to a desert in the sense that it is free for all for the taking. The receiver of the Torah in this sense is also a desert, belonging to everyone. At the burning bush, God told Moshe, Take your shoes off, take your shoes off your feet, cast off any private matters, your human personal needs. Because the place upon which you stand is holy. Your place in the history is filled with sanctity and purity. It's prohibited for you to involve yourself in private family life. What a powerful image. Never ever thought of it in that way before. That Avram had an Akeda but he got his son back. And Moshe had to live with an Akeda where he didn't get either son back. And was that cruel? It was the way it had to be. That Moshe belonged equally to all. And even though if it meant he sacrificed his son's For Moshe to play that transformational role in the Jewish people, for Moshe to be that Avanavim, for Moshe to be that father to all and transmitter to all, he couldn't be more connected to any other and therefore he sacrificed his sons. And that's why it's an anomaly. Even though here we are delineating delineating all the offspring and progeny and we list those of Aaron, we omit those of Moshe because Moshe paid that price and Moshe made that sacrifice. What a powerful, powerful insight. There was much more to share but we're out of time. Tomorrow morning, join us 8.15 for living for uh, 10 minutes of meaning of uh, Mesil Susharim. And then 8.45 for our living with Emunah. And then tomorrow night, we go Behind the bima at 9 p.m. If you've not yet subscribed to our YouTube channel, you'll be notified in real time every time we go live. Come learn with us. Simply hit subscribe on YouTube and join us. Until next time, we daven for our brothers and sisters in Israel, safety and security. May you stay happy, healthy, and holy.